Welcome everyone to the Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so private that he too doesn't have a published address. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. It's time to crack some names and take some skulls. Daredevil, episode 108, Shadows in the Glass, is brought to you by Marcioni's Meatball Sandwiches. If you're looking to take a friend out to dinner, we're the place to go. Order in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Our tease begins with uh, someone dreaming. We have an overhead shot that moves slowly up the body. uh, And suddenly we realize it is Wilson Fisk. He wakes up. He's sweating. He's panting. He gets up and looks at his painting, the rabbit in a snowstorm there as classical music begins to play. He's in the kitchen chopping green veggies, beating eggs. There's butter in a frying pan. He's in a black robe. He's made an omelet. He's sitting at the table there uh, in a beautiful city scape apartment. Um, He uh, puts the green onion there onto his omelet. He's got some bread and takes in the view. We then get to his closet where there are many, many suits. All seem to be black. Puts on a black striped shirt. Um, he reaches into the drawer for cufflinks, the fathers that we've identified previously as the music suddenly starts to get dark. And he turns and sees a boy with blood splattered all over his cheeks and his neck in a daze in the mirror. They both turn at the same time, so we quickly come to the realization they are one and the same, and they turn the light off. Pete, this is just an incredibly, incredibly nuanced opening by itself, let alone the fact that it's setting up this morning routine to be shown once, twice, and then in the classical, you know, the third sense, the, the third time, uh, that that classical three. Um the the little subtleties in it are are so great and i just don't mean the close-ups of the things that you mentioned veggies being chopped eggs cracked etc um things like he wakes up in the dark and then finally when we get to him having his breakfast it is now light out uh just really subtly saying this is somebody who gets up gets up early for work very very early um, similarly, this this mirror shot, or at least I would argue supposed mirror shot with his uh, former self, uh, reminded me of a similar shot in uh, in what was ultimately a deleted scene uh, for for of all things Terminator Two, where to get that mirror shot, they just built a a a mirror version of the set on the other side of the supposed mirror. And I suspect that's what they're doing here, that there's just simply another, another, uh, I'll say closet. I think, you know, working schlubs like you and I wouldn't quite call it a closet, perhaps a dressing room, but I suspect they just built another one. So it could be actor looking at actor in order to, to play off of each other. But I thought he had a department store inside (laughs) his, uh, his apartment there. Well, 
<laughs> you may well think that except for the one thing that slowly becomes obvious in all this while simultaneously being immediately obvious is how profoundly alone he is here you know whether you whether you live with your your sweetie or i don't know some of you rascals might live with a couple sweeties but um you know whether you live by yourself or or uh with others certainly we all know what it's like to get up in the morning in an empty house and make yourself breakfast but there's just a there's a there's a solace to it and, and a slightly unhappy one um particularly of course as the the classical music starts to fade away when he's in the closet but there's just something that that is uh spelled out here by the director which isn't just um privacy it is kind of profound aloneness and and it's just really just an incredible start act one proper begins in matt murdoch's apartment where we are right where we left off there's broken furniture from the fight with stick beer bottles there's the uh talking trademark alarm clock there telling him it's seven o'clock a.m so he's got a different wake up uh routine he's got blood on his uh left temple there bruises are evident um and scars as he's getting dressed with two small uh, strips that he places over his left eyebrow as we uh, faintly note some sirens in the distance, and he puts his glasses on. Pete, I can think of other shows that have intercut the morning routine or, or the routine, uh, and an episode towards the end of the first season of Battlestar Galactica comes to mind, perhaps the season finale. Um, and I have to think that they discuss that at some level, script, editorial, whatever it might be. It's just better here to see Fisk in the in the teaser act in his in his uh, castle, and then to see Matt here in what was kind of like a cool, you know, I kind of imagine it's like a like a lower Manhattan Soho kind of you know thing. Although I guess it tells Kitchen die, take that back. But you know, it's kind of got that cool, like you know what the friends from Friends could live here if it was just a little <laughs> less, you know, blind. Um, but it's just squalor with all that crap that was, you know, demolished at the end of the last episode, and it just looks like it's, you know, the the place some squatter lives, and here he is looking closer to death than life versus the the baby faced, albeit you know, heavy faced Fisk in the first act. And it just, it just plays better being two separate presentations. Meanwhile, at the office, uh, Karen is concerned that Matt would not understand what she and foggy and Ben are doing, looking into the powers at play in hell's kitchen. Um, foggy is, uh, sure that, uh, Matt would know that they are awesome. Uh, her, uh, coffee comes up that with the idea that uh, they're not being stupid, but being, as Foggy explains, foolheartedly provocative. Um, but as they're Nancy Drewing, um, they need to be careful here and have a certain level of honesty with the coffee and with one another. Um, but uh on occasion, uh, there might be some problems that leak out. And uh, they're worried. Foggy's worried about how to keep Matt in the dark. I mean, how long do you think? And boom, there he is. 
the the dramatic importance of foggy i i think is is not completely understood you can't do dark without some light to tell you <laughs> that the dark is dark if you will and they're not quite fully playing him as a comic character here but just his you know late 20s effervescence take a bite out of life hey we got enough money rolling in to pay the bills cool let's go do this crazy thing to you know fight the union allied guys and it, it, it's so um closest to the real world at least for that kind of mindset and that age um while everybody else is just kind of wallowing in the squalor that is the story um and, and the darkness and the corruption and all of that and it he's he's really a tether back to back to us in the real world um and, and Again, I don't think that's completely obvious, but in a scene like this, it's just a reminder, hey, some people are trying to have a career and have some fun and maybe get with the girl here while everything else is falling apart. And, uh, you know, do you grow the hair out? Uh, Mullet? Full pony? What do you do? And then Karen is noticing what uh, has happened to Matt here with the series 30th (laughs) S-word. Did he fall down again? Um, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's nothing, no big deal. Um, and suddenly they are realizing how much he heard of their conversation. Foggy says he's like a bat except for the blind thing, but bats aren't blind, Foggy. That's a myth. Okay. Um, but, uh, they go on here to talk about what they've been doing, investigating union allied And uh, Foggy knows he can't trust Karen on the witness stand. Thank God she never got there with the crime she was accused of. Um, But Matt tells them, you can't be doing this. And we're echoing what Stick said in the the previous episode. These people closest to uh, Matt, he wants very much to protect them. Um, he reminds Karen she signed legal papers and taking money not to talk about this, though she reminds him that uh, it's not her who's going to be going public. And they bring out Ben here, which figures large towards the end of the episode to break this story. There are so many uh, TV episodes and movies that have done the whole wow they don't know that so and so is the hero is the masked person etc um, but you don't think of that when you're watching this scene here that Karen is the one highlighting the need for central justice and Matt is pulling back that pulling them back down to the legal realities uh, you know of that non-disclosure agreement it is the farthest thing in the world from like, you know, and look, we all love the Adam West Batman on on some level, but it's the farthest thing from like, I am just a philanthropist here in Gotham City. I know there was overtones of Shatner there. I do apologize. But I mean, <laughs> point being, it Batner? just plays. <laughs> Indeed. Um, um, well, no, I mean, overtones of Shatner and how I said it. But anyhow. Um, I said Batner. Why don't. Oh, Batner. I, why couldn't William Shatner play Batman? Pete, he still could. At 83 or 4, he still could. Um, but 
it, it's just great how in their maskless situation that they're in right now how it's so it's so effortless that he's the one kind of saying let's play by the rules here let's stay within the lines definitely and you know when it comes to what's happening with elena cardenas and being strong armed out of her apartment by these people and everything that's going on there there's further collateral damage um and Matt has to hear that they already took care of the guys who did that. And then, you know, he's got to lay down some rules here. This, this isn't going to happen. Uh, there are things out there and they're going to get themselves hurt. Um, and he establishes some rules here and that they're not going to go skulking around and, uh, put themselves in harm's way there is also that great line too that he has uh he is saying it to karen in relation to ben although i think uh, it can be said about just about everybody in this show everyone's a great guy until they're not um he of course saying oh let's not trust ben but gee whiz here's the great lawyer saying let's use the law while people he deals with at night end up dead sometimes not particularly by his hand but uh just uh just a scene that really chugs along nicely right and uh you know it's it's about their safety it's about their protection and him not willing to expose them despite the fact that he doesn't have his second rule there mad because like indiana jones he's making it up as he goes along hey sometimes the best heroes do we head to the waterfront and we are inside a building there. Fisk is explaining to someone else, I understand your position, but you need to understand mine. And we quickly come to see that this is Nobu. There is some Japanese, which Wes translates, um, that he is questioning. Nobu is the validity of Fisk's position. And uh, Nobu says that uh, it is a pee-pee and a poo-poo. 31 <laughs> it's it's so great to see these three characters together um particularly fisk kind of um angry and on fire in the beginning blaming nobu for the loss uh of the black sky uh, or i guess it's just black sky um fisk highlighting that he kept up his end uh for things to be police free uh but then fisk is so quick to back uh, to back off when nobu is considering renegotiating the terms of their relationship. Um, And you kind of get the sense even in that moment, and certainly as the scene unfolds without Nobu, that some of it is for effect on Fisk's part, that he's able to kind of retreat to bring the person back into the, into the center of, of the situation. But there's just such, again, I'll use the word nuance. There's just such nuance to it where lesser shows would be, looking to do this one note where it's just guys yelling at each other and act angry and instead there's just kind of an ebb and a flow to their to their emotions well nobu's switching over to english and uh his confirmation that the black sky is indeed dead i think there was some uh you know uh trepidation to believe stick when he told the other figure at the end of that episode and had told 
Matt as well that that was the case. <clears throat> now to hear it from the bad guys, we know it's the case. But Fisk did his part. He he kept the police away. You know, he's saying that maybe you should have told me it, it was important that we would do this. And uh, Nobu laments the fact that it's going to be difficult to locate another black sky. They're extremely rare, Matt. I don't know if you knew that. Well, you know what? Thanks to Mr. Nobu, I do. So the next time I'm out there seeing a black sky, I'll do I'll do what I have to do. <laughs> I'll take a picture and email it to him and say, look, rain's coming. Yeah, he's going to make it rain. Um, but uh, the, the Japanese comes back and Wes translates here. He's asking if you'd like to rene- renegotiate the terms of your relationship. This is where Fisk backs off. You know, I'm sorry if I offended you. He apologizes. Wes gives this really smug look. And uh, there's more Japanese. He looks at Wes. Nobu does. And he leaves. And Wes sighs. He removes his glasses. And and that action by this character has come to uh, mean quite a bit. Um and he wants to know if his boss got that last part. And Fisk explains in a moment of foreshadowing that, yes, threats are clear in any language. Nice catch there in the foreshadowing, by the way. Uh, a, a great reveal ahead in the episode. Um, but one that only works in retrospect. Here it just, I mean, I kind of was like, oh, I didn't get that. But then it was like, oh, well, I wasn't, you know, I was taking notes and this and that and the other. And if, if the character wants to say that he picked up you know, body language or tone or whatever. Okay, you know, that works. Um, but Fisk there, of course, uh, highlighting the idea that, um, you know, you want to keep the good times going strong. And there's that great line to end the scene. Uh, the, uh, the good times are when one should be the most cautious. Definitely. We, uh, we highlight and name check our other parties involved here. You know, it's, <clears throat> it's about, people who contribute and who's contributing the Russians had contributed. Okay. Um, if they'd spoken to Fisk this way, Wes would be worried. Uh, but Leland's financials, Gao's product, Vlad and Anatoly's distribution, um, you know, until they absorbed that facet. But what does Nobu bring to the table here? It seems to be all take and no give. Um, what are they in all this? Wes asks, as us, essentially, as the evil version of us, Matt. <laughs> and Fisk tells him they're a necessary evil. Um, and Wes is just so protective of Fisk. He doesn't like the way that Nobu speaks to him, especially now when everything is going their way. And like you said, it's about being cautious when that's the case. And we move to a flashback, which is was not immediately apparent, it, which is it's a slightest criticism at time of the sh- this show. I think of the very beginning of the show with the flashback of Matt being injured with the um, the liquid that hit his eyes. And it wasn't a- immediately apparent that was a flashback with the curly headed kids here bouncing a basketball. It's not till we see dated cars that we know. We're, uh, you know, in the 60s or the 70s here based on the music. There's stickball, hopscotch. Pretty sure I heard, well, I know I heard Rolling Stone's Brown Sugar later, 
but uh, didn't quite make out the song immediately on the radio that uh, Marlene, who is unseen, asks to turn this down. And a man says that uh, your mom don't like music. And uh, the introduction here of uh, Papa Fisk, Bill Fisk, and it's it's incredible how, I don't know, just in the shorthand of how they've cast these people, how they've dressed them, how, I mean, even things as simple as how he is standing and she is sitting, there's immediately a, a sense of the power dynamic in this marriage and in this family, uh, which, of course, is going to you know be explored deeply during the course of this episode. Um, but it might kind of be hinted at in the beginning, but there's there, there's still is... Uh, there's hope in the air. We immediately realize the boy from the T's minus the blood, of course. Uh, you know, he likes it. And mom's sitting on the couch there, balding Bill Fisk uh, says uh, that because you got taste. And uh, Marlene makes it clear she likes music, just not so loud. And, uh, you know, we rapidly set up this rapport between a uh um you know it seems like a battered wife early on uh come to find out later on it, it is whether or not there was abuse prior to that culminating event but they're making signs here which uh becomes apparent with the picture of bill fisk and uh little willie is uh, cutting um, sticks for the uh, the campaign signs. The degree in which this scene, again, is kind of trusting the audience, as so many uh, other scenes and other moments in the series have, uh, is, is notable. Um, I think a, a knuckle-dragging broadcast show uh, looking to appeal to the lowest common denominator uh, would include dialogue to point out that money is tight. Instead, there she is just kind of uh, keeping the books and there's a lot of, you know, uh, past due or overdraft or, you know, that kind of thing just quickly shown enough to say, hey, they're, 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 they're kind of scraping to get by here, uh, which, of course, will be uh, a story point very quickly in this scene. Um, but again, there's just this, there's just this, um, I don't know, there's a momentum to the episode where they're not going to stop and really spell it out for you. Just kind of, uh, uh, you know, pedal faster to keep up to your audience. And it's about respect here. Um, Willie says, sorry to his father. Sorry, what? Sorry, sir. You got to give respect if you want it. And we see that that is something that uh, <clears throat> little Willie took from his father and ran with when it comes to his dealings with people like Gao and Nobu. But um, having cut the sticks here a little short, sawn them a little too short, uh, you don't want to put dad's face in the dirt. Little foreshadowing there, perhaps, Matt. But like you said, it is these past due notices that really draw your attention between interurban heating and the other ones who are demanding uh, payment as Bill Fisk mounts a campaign for the third council district were at odds with how this is all happening. And we come to find out that, uh, you know, back when uh, little Willie was still uh, pooping 32, 
in his pants. Um, old Mr. Flores down the street, uh, <clears throat> he turned into a big shot and he changed his fortune. And Bill is hoping to recreate that for himself and his family. Pack up, really big house, the whole thing here. And as he uh, swills a beer, he explains to his son that this city, it's everything right there. All you got to do is make it happen. And want to make something happen? How about having a sip of beer? And in mom's opposition to it, in something that uh, that is, uh, I mean, certainly not to be recommended, of course, but something that, that is so, so common, that the, the tiniest little sip. I mean, I can remember it happening to me once when I was, I don't know, maybe about seven or eight. It was the tiniest little sip while we were having pizza and it was awful and it was yucky and you know so on and so forth and i'm sure so many people have a similar memory but there's just this sword hanging above the scene there's just this this dark cloud no black sky pun intended where it's just somehow mom is so earnest in her opposition for her son to have this beer kind of a you know almost a a nothing concern that we might have and it's just again this feeling of Mom knows more than the story has told us yet. Well, this battle of wills between the two parents here with little Willie in between, and he finally does, goaded by his father, take the swig and, of course, spits it all over the rug. Um, And uh, he thinks it's funny the dad does. You know, he's a man. This is what it means to be a man, which actually, no, it has nothing to do with it. (laughs) Again, there's just this um, the the way this is presented. Like I, it, it's it's two plus two equals five. In that there is no story evidence that Dad is the guy that we find out he is later in the episode, but somehow it's just there in how the the actors, the director, the the cinematographer, the camera people, etc. It's just it's somehow it's imbued in all of their individual crafts, and we get that even though it's not there. But come on, Matt, you worry too much. You know, somebody's got to pay for all of this and relax. The old man's got it covered. He took a loan from the bank. Nah, screw the bank. Rigoletto floated him. Okay, who's that? Uh, Little Willie wants to know. Ah, nobody. Forget about it. Um, But, uh, you know, he looks at it, the father looks at it as an investment here. And there's just a look on Marlene's face like, yeah, I know what kind of investment this is. But uh, you got to spend money to make money. You get on that council. You got to put yourself out there, Matt, was the repeated uh, line throughout the episode. And, uh, you know, Willie really uh takes that to heart he he looks at it and uh makes it his own as we go but uh love the way the scene ends again the foreshadowing the nail uh just above the forehead of uh bill fisk on the sign and he pounds it three times and there is uh, also the the parroting that young willie is doing from dad and dad's line uh you know that uh, to the effect that uh, the boy is smarter than his mom. And again, just this like, hey, I know it's 1968, but that's not cool. And uh, just, you know, just a scene that is setting up so much ahead in this uh, in this particular flashback story. But Pete, a flashback story that has now concluded for the scene. Back in the present, 
Fisk is on the phone here. We don't know with who, but it is clearly a uh, delicate conversation explaining about his time abroad in Asia. Um, and he gets interrupted on the other line, which he curtly tells the other caller to wait gets back with his first priority and we find out it's Vanessa. He tells her good night and he seems to rapidly be losing patience and control here with Wes telling him there's a situation. Is it Nobu? No, it's detective Blake who's awakened from his coma and their media contacts tell him that, uh, it'll be the lead tonight. Um, is he going to say anything they should be concerned about? Uh, they don't think so, but um, his injuries are extensive and they hear he can't speak yet, but that can change um, given that they had him shot. And Fisk orders Wesley to take care of it, but that poses an issue because their access just doesn't give them as wide-reaching ability as they've had before. There's a detail on the floor, 24 hours, and uh, they don't control the door there. It's nice to see limitations on the Fisk Empire here, uh, that you know they don't have access to every hospital room in every hospital in, in you know and the ability to kill any cop at any time who might possibly speak, et cetera, et cetera. It's nice to just see that kind of tug back to earth uh, experienced by the Kingpin. Well, they're worried that the masked man might try to finish what he started here. But uh, with their inability, they turn to the partner, Hoffman. And Wesley uh, reaches has reached out to him already, but they go back, uh, he and Blake, from before the Academy, so he doubts he's going to be receptive. Um, but Fisk wants him to set up a meeting so he can speak with him himself. And, I mean, the, the forthcoming face-to-face between Fisk and Hoffman obviously set up here because Fisk says go make it happen but just this notion that you know it's not just bad enough that it's his you know his police partner but that it's somebody that he's been friends with for you know just I don't know judging Hoffman and uh, and uh, Blake to be maybe mid to late 40s so probably for the majority of their lives they have known each other it's just it's just heartbreaking um, and and shows the 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 lengths that uh, Fisk and company will go to keep things uh, running ship shape. Back at Nelson and Murdoch, uh, Foggy finds this researching that they're doing Matt's way pointless. He wants to be on those streets, cracking names and taking skulls. Uh, Matt is, of course, concerned that Foggy would be in intensive care within five minutes, but tells matt how he handled uh baldy and his tattooed gorilla isn't that right k <laughs> what is this show momentarily for about five <laughs> seconds baldy and the gorilla back to and, you k k yeah um but you know the the playful banter aside here and some tech matt's working on a braille keyboard um he finds something about confederated global investments. You know, Foggy gives us our 
necessary exposition. The company that hired them to defend that bowling alley nut. Uh, and Karen looks into the list of subsidiaries through them, and there is a Westmeyer Holt contracting on the list. They've had half a dozen complaints against them for the same thing that happened in Elena Cardenas's tenement. Um, they are trying to force people out. So Karen asks, well, what about the landlord, that Tully guy? Because we've not said his name yet in this episode. And we're quickly leading down a path here. Uh, Foggy is going to see if he can track uh, Senor Tully down. And Matt says, use the phone. And Foggy doesn't want to do that. Rule number two, Matt, of Matt Murdoch's fight club or his law club, we should say. <laughs> um, you do this over the phone. Matt's rules suck. <laughs> Foggy. By the way, Pete, let's let's just spend a minute talking about how cool this e-reader type keyboard thing is that he uses. I can only assume because it was treated so casually that it's a real thing and it would make sense. It's just, you know, the little dots coming up and reading a word document or whatever it is. But I just thought it was, I mean, I thought it was a neat piece of technology and thank goodness that, you know, for people who need it, you can just, again, however it's interfacing with a digital document, thank goodness that they can just have a big giant document and be able to blast through it without the need for a braille printer and all that jazz. I just was like, I thought the show almost underplayed the presence of it, but it was just, you know, hey, this is a tool he uses and he's reading with it. If you'd like to be able to use one, I know a guy. <laughs> I'm sure you do. And uh, listeners to our Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast know that uh, you have some uh, you have some pals in Hydra. But that's another podcast and another story. Back to this one. That wasn't a threat. That was an office store connection oh. that I have. I was a little worried there. Yeah. I thought maybe... Uh, I thought maybe assumes uh, the worst. I thought I thought maybe you were my Hoffman, Pete. No. <laughs> um, but uh, the the beeping comes across on Karen's laptop here. The New York Bulletin has gone online with a report that the cop shot Blake uh, has regained consciousness here. Uh, and despite what Foggy thinks of this guy, they would be interested in seeing what he had to say Um with uh, having been shot and the masked man uh, and his potential involvement. We move to Fisk and Hoffman, and uh, there's great concern here that they can't allow this to get out of hand. Uh, but Detective Blake, if he chooses to speak out of turn, the result will be unpleasant for Fisk and for Hoffman. And there's this great 180 camera move where we see now that Wes is there and um, Hoffman uh, tells Fisk that, um, you know, how this is going to turn out after you shot him, <laughs> you know, um, and Wes mentions that, uh, you know, they, they've paid people off Um and Fisk brings up the path they're on here is filled with finality. And Hoffman reassures them that, you know, he knows how to keep his mouth shut. But uh, Wes is doubting that, uh, you know, they wouldn't be having this meeting if he couldn't keep his mouth shut. 
And there's such an honesty in how Fisk spells things out. Uh, you know, he is he is respectful of the um, the deed that is being asked of Hoffman. Uh, of course, Fisk will start to introduce the idea in a little bit that there actually isn't much of a uh, of a decision to be made. You know, Hoffman must do it. But it's it's really an example of how Fisk is a fantastic leader. Now, yes, he is a leader asking, I don't know, one cop to shoot another cop in order to hide the, you know, the the awful goings on that are that are going on. But it's just kind of this, you know, hey man, it's up to you. This is why here's you know, one, two, three, here are the reasons. And it's just, I mean, look, if Vincent D'Onofrio is not at least nominated for an Emmy for this role, then it shows that the Emmys still have a Netflix bias. Yeah, I really think that the hardware nominations will really uh, open people's eyes in terms of what Netflix has done with this show. But with Fisk here laying it out for Hoffman that... Almost like you have a responsibility here, uh, detective, that, that you know, these uh, addresses got out and, uh, you know, this enabled through your partner's slip up the masked man to locate Vladimir Ran- Ransikov, um, that this has all been complicated on their end, not by Wilson Fisk and his organization. Um, and Hoffman openly worries, you know, well, how long until I do something that makes you mad? Um, but he wants this taken care of, you know, he's your partner, he's your friend, you know, uh, Hoffman talks about how they've known one another 30, 35 years and Fisk wants to know, well, how much is each of those years worth to you, you know? And round figures. And I mean, again, that line there, how long until I do something to to annoy you? Uh, <laughs> Fisk's response there, it is enti- that is entirely up to you. And it's just gentlemanly and chilling at the same time, meaning it might be in about five minutes or it might be never. Um, and then again, with just that kind of, let's just get down to brass tacks here. Let's put a number on what this friendship is worth because you have to and there's been this slow introduction throughout the scene of um small acting on the part of uh, the guy playing hoffman you can see fear washing over him you can see his chin quivering then a little bit more it's not over the top this is not the young and the restless but it's just you can see him slowly this tough guy slowly melting under the pressure here and realizing what fisk knew when they walked in there that this is not a yes or a no. This is a yes because the, at the end of the day, Hoffman <laughs> likes his life more than Blake's. And if if helping provide for his family is going to assuage the guilt for what's going to happen, then Hoffman's going to put a number on that because the biggest number is number one, meaning himself. And you know the, the scene ending with Hoffman overcome, but ultimately he's going to play ball to the hospital and we've got slow motion cops and nurses the elevator opens and it's Hoffman there who's a little sweaty with the weight of what he has to do he gets to the cop at the door there there's some good news but Hoffman always knew this guy was a tough 
SOB, but he's got to sign in. He's got to be checked out here. They look in the bag and, uh, you know, Ooh, it's a, it's a meatball from, uh, Marchione's, you know, Blake loves that place. And, uh, you never know, it might trigger something. So he comes on into the room, there's beeping, uh, he's left alone, he puts the sandwich down, and uh, didn't know whether maybe there was going to be a gun in there, but the syringe made a little bit more sense. Hoffman uh, tells him he's sorry, and he injects Blake's IV, who wakes up, and though he's not spoken to anyone else, his first words are, what are you doing? And behind Hoffman, we see our masked man with the stick. Uh, they have it out. Um, the uh, compound begins working quickly on uh, Blake, who starts coughing. Uh, the sleeper hold from the masked man puts Hoffman down, and uh, the masked man puts a chair in front of the door here. And he very calmly tells Blake, that uh, the compound that you've been injected with, that your partner put in you, has already reached your heart. You'll be dead soon. There's nothing you can do about it. But you can make the man responsible pay if you tell me everything you know about Wilson Fisk. There, there are two particular little things uh, earlier in this scene that I just want to highlight. First of all, that slow motion dolly shot in the hospital hallway um, showing how busy it is, but just really telling us in its slow motion the weight that Hoffman is under, you know, that sense that we all feel in a big moment where time is slowing down. Um, similarly, when Blake uh, is getting the IV ready, I love that there's tomato sauce from the meatball sub on his hands. Uh, I am sure that on some level the tomato sauce is meant to be standing in for, you know, the damned spot of blood, the blood that's going to be on his hands as he kills his partner and his friend. Um, and then lucky for him, well, I guess I was going to say lucky for him, fate intervenes and the masked man pulls him back. But no, as you said, uh, Hoffman is in the process of killing Blake, uh, though Hoffman is currently uh, the victim of that sleeper hold. And the cops are banging on the door here. Uh, Blake asked at one point, is it my turn for this? And once the cops break the door down, there's a flat line and an open window. Um, and things are not exactly what they appear. We cut to Leland being fitted for a suit. Leland wants uh, another person and we find out that it is Fisk to look at his face. He can't go to his office like this, having been slapped around by the masked man before he, of course, uh, tased him. Um, but uh, he's afraid anywhere uh, that this masked psychopath might follow him along. His son was supposed to uh, come visit, and he said, stay out of New York, Lee. Stuff, 33, is going on. He's 73 years old. Um, how many times left uh, is he going to see him here? Pete, I hate to be a, uh, a broken record. And for y'all younger kids out there, you might say, I hate to be a repeating MP3 
shuffle on one song guy but the the small details here are what sells the scene yes there's this important dialogue here uh, uh about uh, the need for bodyguards and the particulars going on and leland's importance to the organization but you know what sold it for me pete was this little story affectation of the tailor who makes presumably bulletproof suits or some sort of protective suits for for you know the, this criminal element and the tailor is he some small italian the mustachioed man with his collars the his shirt sleeves pushed up no it looks like a guy who hopped on his motorcycle you know had a whole bunch of uh um boiler makers and then now just is now just is ready to make the bulletproof suit man yeah well um that kid's half an idiot but we'll talk about him in a little bit um, but Leland is scared as he is here and, and this creates tension in the relationship with him and Fisk as it has with his entire operation. Uh, this suit that he's being fitted for, uh, it, it's itchy, you know, uh, what's it coated with, uh, polyethylene glycol silicate. It creates, uh, hydro clusters that form uh, when kinetic energy, blah, 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 blah. Listen, kiddo, I'm just a 46 long. <laughs> the, the cut to the BS-ness of Leland is so welcome because you have Fisk and basically everybody else will see it in a little bit with Madame Gao where it's all about, you know, there you go, sir. There you go, ma'am. It's all about the niceties. Leland just totals up the numbers for bad things, and he's able to figure out that certain numbers tell you certain things. He's able to read those tea leaves, as he told Nobu last week. And, I don't know, to me it's such a brilliant move, although it's obvious to say, if you're going to have this 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 gang of thieves, gang of high-end thieves, one the tougher, tougher than the next, to have the one guy who's just like, I don't really care, just make the thing and shut up. It's it's so wonderful because it it helps uh, it helps highlight the the uh, roughness of all the others. He wants to know what to do here, though, and uh, Fisk tells him that they're going to move him someplace safe. They're going to put six men on him, and Leland wants a dozen, um, so that when he's dropped off a roof, all that money that goes with him goes for a ride. Fisk wants to know whether he's being threatened here, and Leland. He states the obvious and that he's stating the obvious, but he never thought he would have to with Fisk. Wesley is there and uh, he explains that uh, there were some complications, a word that uh, Leland is hearing more and more, that um, Hoffman injected Blake before he was incapacitated by their masked friend. And... uh, that had Blake still been alive as they think and what he told the masked man is an issue. Um, but according to Hoffman, things have gone their way and Leland is, uh, sarcastically pleased. Great. Wonderful. Um, you know, that, uh, the guy you shot told the whack job we framed for it, what was going on. But uh, Wes says they've spun this in their direction and uh, seems to be working out. Leland uh, is ready for a parade. 
And Pete, what is the subtext of the scene, though? It's shocking to us to see anyone speaking to the mighty kingpin in this manner. But we understand, uh, just as Leland understands, he can speak this way. He is the money guy. Without him, how is anybody going to keep track of anything? And um, it's just, it's it's another kind of crack in the armor here for for this fisk enterprise where he's pointing out the mistakes he's being disrespectful to the to to the the head of it all and fisk can do nothing about it well when we flash back again to uh marlene comforting her son there's a beer in the foreground again there and uh she gives him some zuppa you know, he's not hungry, but when she joins in, he starts to feel better. So this bond between um, mother and son is <clears throat> very clearly strong. But the dad comes in and he wants to know what happened. And, uh, you know, Bernie said something. Uh, mom starts to interrupt and the dad cuts her off here. I asked him, you know, you give him too much of uh, that stuff. 34 uh you're trying to make him fatter than he is already dad of the year stuff here you know by the way pete i'll mention that in this scene um i noticed something that that made me um made me think uh, i I thought about this scene when you earlier said that uh there's kind of no no evidence in the initial scenes of domestic violence going on in this scene mom has blotches and bruises on her arms um certainly in that earliest scene i i haven't gone back to look if it's there but i like to think that maybe there's nothing there in the beginning because the show is just slowly leading towards where we are headed um but here definitely it's not just kind of you know, blotches on the actress because it's been a long day or it's not just, you know, whatever because she was leaning on them before they started filming. Definitely kind of intentional signs of abuse there. Oh, I would not disagree. When they go to see this Bernie Walker kid um, who is hitting uh, cola bottles with a baseball bat off of what appears to be a discarded toilet, of course, uh, he doesn't want to call Bill... Fisk a loser to his face and he hides behind that his father said it he's just repeating it but ultimately he knocks Bernie down and then in a bit of bonding Matt has his son come over and repeatedly kick him my take in this scene was much more sympathy for Bernie than um, I had expected Yes, he looks 18, where young young Willie Fisk maybe looks about, I don't know, 11. But Bernie was Bernie kind of gave off this vibe of a young 18, you know, a young punk kid who thinks he's bigger than he is. Um, even the smashing of cola bottles, it looks like, you know, looks like a like such a punk thing to do. The flip side is he's smashing some bottles in a empty lot. Uh, similarly, and I think it's so important to note that he's trying to leave the situation. He's put the bat kind of over his shoulder. He's trying to leave and he turns away and accidentally hits uh, Bill Fisk in the head. Um, again, not the most instance of someone acting with forethought, but he does not knock Bill Fisk down out of anger. He's trying to turn and just simply get out of there. He's standing up for himself a bit to kind of, you know, not 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 run away, but... Um, 
Bill's reaction here, <laughs> obviously, obviously, completely out of uh, out of proportion to the uh, to the actual actions that we see Bernie giving here. And with that, we've completed one circle. Matt Fisk awakes um, from a dream as before, and he's panting again. Cut to music, eggs, table, suits, shirts, cufflinks. The phone rings decidedly Asian uh, box that the cufflinks were in there in the center of um, Fisk's department store size walk-in closet slash annex. And um, it's Wesley. <clears throat> Puts him on the speaker and Gao has reached out. She'd like a word. Uh, Fisk says, you know, send the car, but she's coming to Fisk. And, uh, he wants to know how quickly um, Wesley can be there uh, before she arrives. And before you know it, he's serving her tea and she's uh, in her lovely lilting Mandarin accent here approving. Uh, he picked this tea up in his last visit to her country. The second reference in this episode, again, foreshadowing some events to come thought she'd enjoy it but uh she didn't come for the tea matt and suddenly madame gao speaks english for the first time um that fisk does not need wesley uh to form her words and similarly it's fisk <laughs> who can also speak back to her in mandarin um, and she's able to also switch to Japanese, and he's responding in that too. And I just, I, as much as I love the Wesley character, I also love that he looks shows so shamed uh, even before he is dismissed. And it made me wonder that when um, when Fisk is on the phone with him in the previous scene, and Fisk is almost humbled in asking Wesley to come over as soon as possible. Can you get here before she gets here? Um, it made me wonder if when Wesley is dismissed in this scene, is Wesley asking himself if he has been brought there because he is this trusted uh, lieutenant and this, uh, you know, this kind of compatriot in arms? Or has he been brought there to kind of be this, you know, th this, this fake way of propping Fisk up, you know, not to serve as translator, but to serve as the pomp and circumstance of, well, the conversation must go through a third person. And kind of Wesley reevaluating his importance in this uh, in this operation, right? And uh, Fisk asks how long Gao has known that he speaks her language, which she reveals since the beginning. But she tells him that a clever man plays the fool, and a foolish woman doesn't recognize. But when we go to Japanese here, uh, you know, and the reveal that. Uh, Fisk speaks that as well. Uh, he doesn't believe that Nobu knows that he speaks Japanese, at least not yet. And, uh, you know, her displeasure here, his assurances that it's being handled, but uh, that she's found out his most guarded secret, where he lives, shows that the king in his castle here, um, you know, without her having to use bones and spells and chant beneath the moonlight, 
has uh, become a little sloppy and emotional, Matt. It's a great reveal that uh, he lives in this secret home. But beyond that, the fact that she too is pointing out, just as Leland did a few scenes ago, that he is becoming sloppy. And and it's not just the references, uh, or the reference is not just to the Russians, rather, but the implication is that the operation as a whole that he is overseeing uh, is becoming sloppy. And, you know, why is she not making a bigger deal of this? She's here, come here as a courtesy and come here out of respect. But there, there's that, that sharp warning to get your house in, in order, or she's going to deal with Nobu and Leland directly, which, of course, what's the very clear implication? That would cut the king out of the process here. And uh, if the king's out of the process, he's not much of a king at all. And the king's out of his mind because after exclaiming, apparently in Mandarin, he flips the table there and yells at Wesley to get out. <clears throat> Certainly a scene of rawness. And I, I had to feel bad for Wesley there. But uh, we, of course, Pete, don't have much time to think about that because we go back to uh, Willie the boy. Right. Uh, it's uh, dad pulling a chair here. And uh, he tells his son to look at the stucco wall there and to think of the man you want to be. Sit here and stare at that wall. You're my son. You should be a king, not some fat little wussy um, that uh, he's become here. But the mom sees this. The dad explains that he's got to go out. Marlene says, uh, wait, you're going out tonight. Marlene asks her husband if this could wait, and he tells her no. He gets his cufflinks out that he's got to talk to Rigoletto tonight. And she wants to know, well, how much do you owe? And he tells her, don't worry, got it covered. But this is where she goes off. You know, I told you, you had to be a big shot. And uh, then the, the really unfortunate incident starts matt where he slaps her down and uh you know he doesn't get enough stuff 36 out there he's got to get it in his own house he takes the belt off tells her to shut up and uh wilson just keeps looking at that painting well or or rather the the, the stucco wall evocative of the painting which, yeah, yeah, yeah which is just I mean, a masterful connection between the two. There's been this mystery as to what draw it drew him toward the the painting. Now we know the answer. It's taking him back to this rather modest uh, apartment of his youth. And I liked past tense. I liked that we cut away from from the beating as it was. It was mostly unseen. Um, it was achieved through sound design. Um, there's this prolonged fade out of the sound as we go back to adult Fisk. And again, I liked past tense that we cut away from it. I think the the um, potent brilliance is that we return to it, again, not seeing much in a bit. And I don't mean to skip ahead in the narrative, but um, it, it, both ends of this uh, scene with, with uh, the present day uh, separating it. Uh, but both ends of this of this attack are done largely in our minds, um, and it's just so masterful that we say, "Okay, whew, 
I get it that there's violence in the real world, but at least in at least in this in this show that's that's fun and entertaining and not supposed to be too deep. At least we've cut away from it. Um, but the joke's going to be uh, be on us on a bit. But Pete, first we do return back to the present, and he's staring out the window. Uh, Fisk is in his apartment, and Wesley shows up, not having been called for, um, and he's told that he would have been called for if he was needed but he doesn't think that um fisk is being truthful here and then we see vanessa in this white dress she tells wesley will be all right and uh she talks about how she likes the place she's just not sure about the table but uh he doesn't seem sure about it either um and reminds fisk of the promise that uh they made to always be honest and he wants her to go. Um, and she says that she will, if that's what he wants. But, uh, you know, Wesley is, is worried about you. Um, he's your friend. Um, and, uh, that, uh, he shouldn't be. Pete, I love the the injection here of Vanessa into the narrative. I love that Wesley has, at least presumably overstepped his boundaries to do what he perceives his boss needs, not what his boss says he wants. And um, the fact, too, that Vanessa is starting to embrace this man, um, foibles and all, and the foibles are considerable and serious, and she has kind of come to terms with, hey, sometimes there needs to be simultaneously simultaneous bombing of four buildings um mimicking some sort of terrorist attack because that will make the city a better place she too is on her own journey uh and uh we once again have have uh, an echo of uh you know everyone is a great guy until they're not but he's afraid he reveals to her that um you know the way that she's going to look at him if she knew and she wants him to tell her so we cut back to our flashback where the beating is taking place and the father is letting it all out that he lost the election because of his wife, because of this family. They see it. They see you and that little bastard and they laugh. Um, Wilson is in the chair. Uh, there's tears. He starts to cry. We get another 180-degree shot, which mimics one early in the episode with, uh, with Nobu and Fisk. And he gets up. He grabs the hammer from earlier in the episode. And the dad turns. He says, what are you going to do with that, fatty? Huh? That's what I thought. Okay. And that he gets this stuff, 37, from uh, Marlene. And he turns around, and it's then that Wilson hits him once. And he takes a second there to, to drink that blow in, to feel the back of his head, and he's bleeding. He drops to his knees. And then, Matt, he hits him 12 more times. Uh, and to the point where he, ke- he says, keep kicking him. And, I mean... 
I was not offended by it. So so don't take the words that I'm about to say as literal, but it was a situation where I had to look away. The viciousness of this character, and I mean, kudos to the kid actor, but the viciousness of this kid, the character, just unleashing this rage, this, this uh, I mean, this just this primal anger on his father. I mean, paging Dr. Freud, by the way, but just <laughs> the, the fact that, the fact that, as will be referenced in a little bit, the words he's repeating are are angry ones towards his father, not words in protection of his mother. Even it's it's just so raw, and I mean, it, it's just this case of you know, this is damned humanity here. This is this is one of just just one of the worst examples of 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 humanity and the human condition, and it's just. I mean, it's a marvelous presentation, as awful as it is, while this boy beats his father to death. But of course, Pete, we get to we get to 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 look humanity uh, in the mirror and see something even perhaps one might argue a tad worse. Yeah, there was a little bit of an Oedipal vibe, and uh, you know, the mom is shushing him; the the fingers are, you know, still twitching, and uh, they get the saw which we know was also in the house and some duct tape. They take the shoes off, uh, the pants, the shirt, the cufflinks are given to the son here. And, um, mom saws, uh, dad's, uh, you know, dying body apart here as uh, little Willie watches the and cufflinks indeed, as the present. And indeed, as he's watching, the camera is very low, um, almost like that of a young child, much younger than Willie. But I think, uh, I mean, I don't know what their intention was, but I certainly read it as just we are seeing it from the point of view of when young Willie first saw domestic violence in the house. And now here we are to its to its awful conclusion. It's just conclusion. It's it's you know, this is this is everything that that adult Fisk has spoken of. We get in one scene. and It's just so incredibly potent. And we find out that they carried him in bags down to the river one every night for the next week. But everybody knew that he had owed money to Rigoletto, so they guess he just left it uh, and, and, and avoided um, you know, paying that debt there. But it was then that he was sent to live with relatives on the farm that he had told Vanessa about. And she comforts him and says, this wasn't his fault that you were protecting your mother. Um, you know, and he says, well, you know, I, I didn't do it for her. I did it for me. That's why I wear these to remind myself I'm not cruel for the sake of cruelty. I'm not my father. I'm not a monster. Am I? And she says, no, no, you aren't. And there's a hug and, uh, you know, soon it won't, uh, won't matter anymore. People are trying to expose him and, uh, you know, they don't understand what he wants to do to the city, that they're going to drag him through the streets, that they're trying to destroy his accomplishments. And she, he asks him, you know, are you going to let them? And it's then, you know, right before a clap of thunder that he says no. And in that question, I mean, shades of Lady Macbeth here, just absolutely, you know, this this interesting arc of Vanessa, who you know uh, as an art dealer there's kind of this 
there's this purveyor of of purity beyond purity and we can sit and say well i don't get this painting or this sculpture is you know nonsense or the sculpture is beautiful but at least it's kind of in search of some sort of you know truth with the capital t and beauty with the capital b and here we are just well what are you going to do to this to, to these people to this person trying to drag your name through the streets are you going to let him know and then as you mentioned pete with the thunder and the rain we cut to someone who's about to speak to that man who's attempting to drag his name through the streets or is this first person pete the person attempting to drag fisk's name through the streets right we have been out here in the rain so we know it's Shortly after the previous scene here, he's on the phone with Ellison describing something as a total bus that the guy he's talking to is a crazy old man with a tinfoil hat. And why are we chasing this story? But he drops his keys. He says he's drowning. He needs to call uh, Ellison back. And the masked man is there um, and he wants to talk. The glasses come off here and Ben tells him, I know who you are. You're the devil of hell's kitchen. But the masked man wants to know, uh, do you believe it? What do you say? And that Ben thinks a lot of people, uh, you know, have found him in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he's heard other stories, too, of help, that there's other sides. But, uh, you know, between Russians getting blown up and uh, cops getting shot, uh, Ben wants to know, am I supposed to write your story? And uh, the masked man tells him he wants to expose the man responsible. The name, of course, Wilson Fisk. He's never heard of it. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, the subject of shadows quite a bit comes up in this final act. It's it's such a well constructed scene visually, um, just the, the the rain and I mean uh, the the actor playing Ben has all these interesting kind of creases in his face and stubble, so that's that's wet and it's just you know yes this is HD TV the way it's the way it's meant to be and um, add to that just this this resilience and this decency that ben has where initially a guy dressed in black who might beat me um is is one of fear but very quickly it's just reporter mode he's talked with bad people before spoke with them about you know many goings on in the city over the years and this guy who isn't beating him within the first 10 seconds okay we got a story here or do we let's 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 start the discussion um and you know, I I love to Ben, of course, uh, putting two and two together. That uh, this masked man is the one that put the Union Allied guy on the steps in front of right. the Bolton, um, and uh, you know, therefore uh, he's not a he's not a killer, but he could be, which I read as foreshadowing for later in the series. Right. Uh, it, it's it's a marvelous, marvelous scene. But all the pieces put together here, the Russians, the triads, the Yakuza, all uh, having their money funneled by a man named Leland Owsley. So taking the next step here, first time we've heard him connected to Wall Street, um, but he's beaten this information out of people. And the dirty cops here, you know, it's, it's not enough. Is there a tape? Is there somebody to corroborate this? He needs to work with reliable sources, not he said 
she said stuff that the light needs to shine in here. Um, otherwise the city is going to tear them apart. But, uh, the masked man, um, you know, having laid this on the table, Ben wants to know if it's enough for you to bet your life on and his too. Um, and then we come back one more time to Fisk with the dream wakes up to the painting but Vanessa is there with him in the bed and he caresses her. And that moment, I mean, obviously it's the third time. So we've had this, you know, alone, alone, not alone. I mean, this is where the episode turns the audience in such interesting ways. Uh, it is triumphant and happy for us, the audience, to see him having been comforted by Vanessa. And I don't even mean that in a, you know kind of way just the emotional comfort of someone there we've seen presumably two mornings already where he wakes up in terror and alone um and and starts his day completely alone uh and, and the notion that now he is not alone now she is there and he's having breakfast and initially he's alone and then Vanessa's there too and she's taking from his plate and it's almost this gasp worthy moment for we the audience you know dare someone touch the food on his plate and it's just this look in his face where he he pauses and he's shocked but he's happy um and it's it's bliss and then we get this wonderful intercut between Ben and Fisk and as the episode goes both higher and lower in its emotion and both emotions pulling us in. Right. And, and Ben's voiceover gets to that subject of shadows and lights again, talking about, you know, getting what they deserve. Um, and the rules here, uh, that there are people who work, but, uh, you know, some rules don't always apply to them. You know, very much a, a 1%, 99% vibe, Matt, from this, this voiceover. People suffering. Vanessa goes into the closet and, you know, the, the shadows being cast uh, get some uh, words there. But she picks out a gray suit in contrast to those shadows. Um, there's talk about the, the middle class trying to claw their way out and the cufflinks get looked at here and she goes with some very classy black squares instead of the, the dad's rather tacky cufflinks from before. But the line, we still matter, is important here. And that there's somebody in Hell's Kitchen who doesn't share uh, this belief that they're all entitled to something and um it's then that we uh we see ben typing away and uh, he looks up from the tv and what do you know it's uh it's wilson fisk on the tv matt and uh he's uh coming forward to uh to help people out he's uh he's pledging support he's pledging aid to hell's kitchen um, if you look closely, uh, Leland is uh, in the first image they show on the TV there to the back right. Vanessa is very uh, close to the left. Eventually, we see Wesley as well to the right of Leland. But Fisk's message is that no one should have to live in fear, um, that uh, fear of masked or mad men 
the the devil of hell's kitchen uh matt murdoch is seen listening to this um the masked man is referred to as a terrorist and fisk says that it was his friend leland owsley who was recently a victim of assault here Somebody's getting coffee listening to this, and we see that it's foggy, and we know how he feels about the masked man. Karen is also watching this, and the line here that uh, we don't want those closest to us to be targets, that uh, we can't live in the shadows, that the light is important, and it's then that Ben uh, is looking at the text and seeing those very words. And he clicks the button here that brings up don't save as an option. And he clicks it. And we're treated to uh, my name is Wilson Fisk. And together we're going to make the city a better place. And Matt Murdock loses his mind and probably his laptop. And what Matt Murdock can't see is the wonderful... Uh, composition for the end of this episode which is fisk speaking directly to the news camera which gives him an opportunity to be looking directly at we the the real audience as well as the the fake news audience and it's just this moment where we have just felt gutted by the fact that ben has deemed his words his article his his muckraking his shining light of truth uh and his role as the intrepid newspaper man particularly within the world of comics as the you know the, the bringer of truth and justice and all that and he's deemed those words worthless and now we have fisk looking at us us at home saying we can make this city a better place and you believe him that's that's the kicker here we are not you know almost two-thirds of the way through this season you believe at the end of this episode that fisk is a better solution for the city than our hero, the future Daredevil. Objection, Your Honor, is badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him, a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, I think we have to start with with Fisk, um, somebody who is so set, regardless of, of the means that we've seen him go to and the means we've seen him employ in this episode, um, you know, who was so set to fix this city. Um, and we see this this awful origin of his uh, moral compass in his flashback story. Definitely. Um, at the same time, there's this sympathetic turn that we take as an audience for him. And that makes what happens at the end of this episode with him coming forward and pledging support to Hell's Kitchen believable. He doesn't get this backstory. We can't feel that way. It's it's a ploy. And even though we know this is a ploy, it it's something we get behind. Well, it's a ploy in the modern day. Um, and it's a ploy to regain control of his ship. But what the TV viewing audience watching this news conference doesn't have access to and frankly what no one else has access to except for fisk himself is the knowledge of this backstory i mean i guess vanessa does too but i mean point being we have an objectivity that perhaps even fisk does not have of himself um which makes makes us the guiltiest for uh for being sympathetic to him 
Pete, next on the list definitely has to be uh, Nobu, such an interesting character and one that the episode kind of highlights. We don't quite know his deal. You know, Gao is uh, heroin and the Russians were selling it and kind of Mo- Nobu is still a bit of a mystery. So like I said before, until we know that, it's it's all take, no give. So we can't speak to that other than the fact that he can speak English and we know now that Fisk can can speak all these other languages as well. So the double dealing by each of these bad guys with one another is delicious. I like that apparently signs of how this uh, season has been constructed are, are starting to show themselves in that um, the Russians propelled things for the first three or four episodes now we have an increasing role for Madame Gao, not just in her person, but also in her operation with the, um, you know, sending the runners with bombs. Logically, then one would assume we're going to get some more time here with Nobu, uh, not just in this episode, but in future ones. Pete, let's add to that uh, Wesley, the uh, the lapdog, the lieutenant, the uh, the brother in arms. The supportive nature that he takes in this episode, we're used to him handling Fisk's needs, but never on this level and never threatened if it would present itself the opportunity for him to slink away from this. I don't know if we're going to get a better case than this. And he throws himself right back in the fire and, and brings Vanessa in because he knows his boss needs her. Pete, next on the list, if there's, <laughs> uh, I certainly don't mean to laugh. I laugh in irony, not in not in humor. If there's somebody who deserves to be a defendant in in actuality, it would be, of course, Bill Fisk. Yeah, um, he is the reason um, we have a Wilson Fisk, and for as much of the good things, you know, the the um, put yourself out there. Uh, mantra, the terrible things that uh, he wrought on his wife and his son and what he turned him into. You know, he asks Vanessa Wilson does, you know, am I a monster? Well, you are, but a monster made you a monster. I appreciate, I won't quite say love because it's uh, such an awful thing, but I appreciate the irony that, uh, that Matt Murdoch's father made a, uh, made a living uh, and, and conducted himself with his fists, but a in pugilist <laughs> indeed as a, you know, as, as a legal and uh, gentlemanly pugilist, you know, to, to, to fight within the rules of the world of boxing. Uh, whereas Fisk's father is in, in the worst of these scenes doing essentially the same thing um, in terms of, you know, hitting and beating, um, but, but under just vastly different circumstances. Pete, next on the list here, Hoffman, uh, whose hands are, uh, are certainly bloodied in the episode. Yeah. The sauce there and, uh, the sandwich and, you know, being okay with, uh, taking some, some money that would, uh, cross a friend of 35 years, before you were cops off the list and uh speaking of that friend blake rest in peace uh but uh certainly we're able to make him a defendant in our court yeah i'm gonna miss his banter with ben uh hopefully somebody will be able to uh to fill that void 
but uh, you know, he had to go. And uh, penultimately, the irascible, coveting uh, Leland. <laughs> Bob Gunton is the man. I can't say enough about what he brings to the scenes that he's in. And uh, I'm interested to see now that Fisk has made this philanthropic turn where Leland can use that attitude for, you know, quote unquote, good. And Pete, last in the uh, the list of defendants here, Madam Gao, so interesting in her presentation and uh, certainly, you know, she, she belies just a, a viciousness. My second favorite character of the series after stick so far just for what she presents and you know the mystery that that comes with her speaking english here for the first time and you know knowing all these other languages and really laying it out we've known before that fisk is intimidated by her but look you know fisk has grown up with a matriarchal mindset the mother the mother figure for him you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see how much mothering Vanessa winds up doing. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. Pete, what is your take on Mr. Potter the Tailor? Well, listen, I know where this is going, so I won't speak to that. But the the mention of the kinetic energy and everything uh, going on there, Matt, with the outfits he's making, the vests conceivably, what do you think is going on? I just read it, I suppose, just as some sort of... Um you know, lighter, thinner, uh, bulletproof vest. Although just, I don't know the, some of the mumbo jumbo, the techno babble that he used did seem a little, uh, beyond saying it's a bulletproof vest that'll look good. Um, so I don't quite know. I, I hope that they have that character back. He seems to have been cast so carefully and so against type, as I said earlier, of kind of the, the, the concept, um, that, uh, I guess we'll find out. Although Pete, I guess somebody else is going to get a new suit at some point. I don't know. Netflix doesn't seem to show me any images uh, when I see this, probably because I have it on the um, the service for the sighted impaired. <laughs> We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Matt, we have been continuing to dribble out some of our iTunes reviews here, which is a wonderful way to get your uh, words heard on the podcast to help us in that you let people know how we're doing and you also help others find us. Mike in MN, Minnesota here, headlines his review, Giving These Devils Their Due. And it reads, Sunday morning, Making breakfast after 6 a.m. mass. Boy, there's echoes of that in this episode, all except the mass part. (laughs) And enjoying listening to Matt and Peter discuss the devil of Hell's Kitchen. Yep, life is good. 
Another hit for Marvel, another hit for these fantastic geeks. They're producing a must-listen podcast to accompany Netflix must-watch show, Daredevil. Subscribe and listen. Wow, thank you so much, Mike, for those kind words. I know I'm repeating myself, but it really does mean so much when we hear, you know, that we have this special place, you know, as you're getting ready or as you're driving, or in this case, as you're as you're uh, making breakfast after uh, after Sunday. So thank you again, sir. And Pete, so many people say thank you because they get to interact with you on Twitter. How can they do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 5,682 followers can't be wrong holy mackerel while i am personally on twitter as looking back lost you can be in touch with the podcast in a variety of ways we are fantastic geek that is fantastic with a ph and you can get in touch with the uh with us through the dot com the gmail and best of all the twitter although pete for some people there's an even better way to be in touch there is facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the ph all one word Get yourself on there, like us, and join in the conversation. With that, Pete, I'll say goodbye to the audience, but I'm not going to say goodbye to you. You say your final word or whatever. I'm going to make breakfast. Matt, you are a man who puts himself out there. <laughs>